My name is Arnold Leitner, and I beat the often path by having devoted my life to the preservation and enhancement of the natural and cultural world. By this I mean is that the the natural wonder of the Amazon is as important as the cultural achievements and the scientific achievements that mankind has accomplished. That the beauty of an orchid opening on the morning is as fantastic as the opening of a solar panel to feed power to the web telescope. So I was decided a long time ago that the way we can accomplish both is that we have abundant energy available that allows us to grow food for a human on the size of a pool table or clean water for our city so that it won't pollute rivers and estuaries. And so that is what I've devoted my life to, and that's the path I've taken. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories to help us think outside the box in our lives and careers and to radically redefine what success means. My guest today is Arnold Leitner, the founder, CEO, and president of U Solar. His innovative approach to solar power and battery storage has gotten him millions of investments so far. Now, he spent two decades innovating in solar, founding two prominent companies in the space called SkyFuel and ReflectTech before his latest endeavor. U-Solar's modular battery grid and solar panel combo allows you to dramatically reduce your need for grid power, for example, in your home, or completely eliminate your need altogether. And it can keep your house running in the case of a power failure, which is great for all of us, but also people in countries where power is not so reliable. It's tech that I hope that someday all of us can have in our homes. So here's Arnold Leitner of U-Solar. Well, welcome to the show, Arnold. That is one of the most fabulous introductions we've had so far. I agree with everything that you just said. Two brilliant points. We're going to get into the marriage of the natural world with human achievement, things that I'm both very passionate about. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So it's not every day that somebody who builds a solar panel company will talk about an orchid opening or the Amazon rainforest. But for some of us in this world, those two things do go together and they do make sense. So how did you end up on this path? And what about those two things did you see could be merged in your own life? Yeah, uh, you know, I I began in conservation. And and that's not because I wasn't scientifically interested. Uh, You know, I I began conservation because I lived in Europe. I lived in Germany. And in the uh, early and mid-80s, you know, Germany was still transforming itself into a more industrial world. So more and more natural habitats were, you know, taken away to build roads or or otherwise um, homes were built. So that has changed, by the way. Meanwhile, in Germany, there's nature's returning, reclaiming as the pace of industrialization has actually slowed down. I discovered this when I go there. And then, of course, we had all the other challenges at the time that were happening on the planet, which were, you know, manifest in Jimmy Carter's, uh, in a seminal work, uh, Global 2000, where he had laid out a vision or his administration had laid out a vision how to build a sustainable planet. So in, in all of this, um, I saw responsibility and opportunity, you know, for me to to make a difference and to really work in conservation. So my path was to protecting peregrine falcons, to working coincidentally with orchids, uh, building, you know, breeding boxes for barn owls up in the steeples of churches, and those kind of things. Um, but then subsequently, you know, as I just got a little older and, and, and looked around, asked myself, what is actually driving 
uh, the impact on these environments. What's what's causing it? And of course, the obvious thing was it's us. It's it's humans. But what could I do to allow me to enjoy the life that I do like? I like you know technology. I like a house. I like being able to travel. What would we need to do that we can you know move forward? preserving the natural world and 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 living you know in the civilizations that I think we all should admire and cherish because we've done extraordinary things and that led me to think that we need to do something in energy and and I decided to become a physicist I decided to study physics and to work on the solutions to provide us abundant reliable energy so that's how I got to that from one one led to the other Fabulous. I know I'm going to love this conversation. Those are all things that I believe, and I'm very excited about this. Um, you got your PhD from CU Boulder. That is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So the the path there was interesting. I, I studied in Karlsruhe, uh, which is a town in the Rhine Valley in the southern parts of Germany. And, uh, you know, I wanted to do really solar energy research. And back in uh, the early 90s, there wasn't just much of anything going on. The only place there was some research was in the United States, actually, at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado. So I had to find a way to get closer. And so ultimately, I admitted, I applied to and I was admitted to the University of Colorado Boulder. So that's how I got to the United States and got to Colorado. Fantastic. Where are you based out of right now? I'm living in the Bay Area. I'm okay. in the northern parts of the East Bay right now. So I took a similar journey. I was born in a suburb of Denver, Colorado, lived there and went to oh, school wow. in Colorado Springs. And now I'm in the Southern California region. So you and I both went from Europe because I also lived in the Netherlands. I lived in Europe with my wife for eight years. I'm from Colorado, now living in California. You've taken a similar progression, it seems like. Yes, yes. The trek eastwards, uh, westwards, apologize. The trek westwards continues even today. Do you so, think yeah. that you'll end up in Hawaii? Sometimes I wonder. Hawaii um, seems to be like a pretty nice place to live. Yes, it's, it's just the most remote part of the world. You know, there's yeah. the island more further remote than Hawaii. I think I'm going to stay here in, in, yeah. in the it's, Bay Area. It's a good spot. I like it here. It's a good spot, yeah. It's a good spot. So what you have landed on, for those who are just joining us, is you have created a technology. Obviously, you've done a lot of pioneering work in the field of solar energy in general with solar capture devices. And your company now, with the poster yeah. behind you, you solar you have a combination of both a solar panel system or a solar capturing system combined with a modular battery system. So you said yes. that a lot of the roads led you to energy. How did you first realize that this was the combination that you would devote your time to? That's, that's actually, uh, thank you, a very good lead in. Um, so my first company that you can still find and is very impressive uh, in terms of the structures it built was Skyfuel, and uh, I founded it in 2005. And uh, its goal was to build large-scale solar power projects in the desert of the Southwest and using what at the time was really the only practical commercial solar electricity production technology, which, which was parabolic trough. Uh, most of your viewers probably won't know what it is, but I encourage them to Google uh, Skyfuel and, and, and parabolic trough to kind of see what, how impressive these structures are. Uh, but it turned out there were um, two challenges uh, with with this technology. One was, you know, it was out in the, in, the, in the open deserts, and it would one or the other way occupy land, right? That otherwise is is used by animals. Going back on plants, going back to the start of this conversation. The other one was, of course, that ultimately, you know, it is a technology that requires uh, thermal energy, which needs water, uh, which also later became no longer cost competitive. So. 
between those two and other reasons beyond uh, the control of our company at the time, including the Lehman Brothers uh, financial crisis, uh, the 2008 financial crisis and, and other uh, gas fracking, um, the, you know, we sold the company ultimately uh, to a Chinese conglomerate. And I became to realize that, you know, we really need to take solar where people use it. Okay, that's above the roofs. And that's kind of seems obvious, right? Um, now, it's not obvious everywhere, because I also like to say you got to fish where the fish are. So there's a question whether, you know, a solar panel over cabin Finland makes much sense. Um, but, you know, certainly for most parts, and I'll tell the viewers anything below uh, between 30 degree latitude, which where billions of people live, most people, um, solar is a completely practical uh, source of energy that doesn't require any auxiliary energy sources like backup fossil can entirely stand on its own. Um, but going back to here, there was something that I didn't like about the model that's been had been employed, which was grid-tied uh, solar. That obviously didn't make sense to me because as a former energy consultant, I was aware of the challenges of moving that power in and out of the grid. And ultimately also people that lose uh, electricity uh, connection through the grid didn't see any benefit from the solar panels because they would just turn off. Um, the other one was that uh, with that batteries had to come in. And I was actually one of the first proponents of lithium-ion batteries. Um, looking at the cycle uh, efficiency. Uh, this was at the time Tesla was founded. I looked at that and thought to myself, that's really the way we need to go. Uh, but then there was a the last and third important part, um, Ross, and that was the third mile of this entire independent energy journey was high power. So solar produces energy, um, batteries can store energy, but the lithium ion battery really offered the opportunity for the batteries to deliver high power. And high power is really where everything is at because your home needs to start an air conditioner, needs to occasionally run uh, a stove and, and a dryer. And that's when peak demand comes in. And being able to deliver that on your own is the first time you really develop some, time, some sort of independence from the grid. And that's not in, in the sense of trying to break free, which many of our customers want, but in terms of the technical dependence on it so that the grid no longer has to be always there and instantaneously deliver high power, which is, is costly in an efficient way to deliver energy. So that's been the path to use solar, to, de to deliver that kind of a solution. And I'll give you a chance, uh, uh, Ross, to follow up with a question because I don't want to go into the technology right away okay. after I explained kind of the bigger picture. Sure. Well, I, I think that it's, it's no secret that people know that it's not about the capturing of the energy specifically in huge parts of the world. Think Australia, think the Southwestern United States where there's tons of sun, like where I live, there's sun almost 365 days a year. We know that we've got tons of sun, but we've got this massive issue where the peak hours of use do not Correct. coincide with the peak hours of sun. In the evening time, people tend to use the most energy in general and the sun is beating down during the day. So we've long understood that it's not the collecting of solar energy, but it's the storing of it for later use, e.g. batteries. And on a large yes. scale, it's often been said, and I'm curious what you think about this, that we simply don't have the battery technology to do that, or we're talking the amount of energy required would require so many lithium-ion batteries to power any kind of city that it becomes impossible. And then we get into other discussions of what kind of rare earth materials or generally rare materials need to be mined to sustain such a battery grid? Do you think that there's a path forward with this current battery technology that could make solar a viable solution for all of our energy needs? Or does something else have to change? Yeah. Um, 
I'll make a note in a moment about peak demand, uh, or maybe let me allow to make, make this first. So energy storage in batteries uh, manages the average demand. That's kind of the increase of air conditioner or other residential loads in the evening when people get home. That's still average power. Uh, what I was referring to and wasn't clear was the instantaneous power. The moment uh, an air conditioner turns on and draws you know, three to four times its average power. Uh, delivering that peak demand locally, which might be a little bit beyond what we want to discuss today, is really the most the most critical and final path uh, for uh, you know the entire energy storage industry to take. But I'll, I'll we can if you want, Ross, we can follow up on this uh, after this because it's actually very important. Uh, but going back to the main point you made here. Um, it's kind of difficult to say. It's it's like answering the question whether you know we're going to recession right now or not. I think everyone thinks, but no one knows. And and similar, you know, everyone thinks it's a lithium problem, but no one knows because the planet is quite quite big, and there's a lot of places that you can get the resources. So um, I don't know the answer to that. And you know, I've I've seen, of course, we've seen one or the other study, depending on you know who wants to make the argument that there's plenty of lithium, plenty of rare earth metals, or others that say no, there isn't. Uh, and then those that say just rely on demand and supply, you know, once it's demand, there will be plenty. But I will say as much is that the cost of specifically lithium ion phosphate batteries has gone up uh, about 20 to 30 percent in the last year. So there is certainly in the short term the sense that there's a supply constraint. Now, that might be entirely driven by um, the pandemic and related issues, but I'm not entirely sure because that's not how our suppliers corresponded with us. But going beyond that, uh, the question of, of distributed versus more um, large-scale storage, I think the answer is clearly on, on the side of, of distributed storage. Yeah. And that goes actually back to the argument I want to make in a moment again. And so the answer is yes, I think you need to put the batteries where uh, the load is, not where the energy is generated, where the load is, because that instantaneous peak power, that 10, 15 kilowatt to start a high load appliance is what really strains the distribution system and is costly. To deliver so yes i think the batteries need to be right by the load and i can do a little math if you like to explain that okay well maybe we should get a little bit into that but it does bring up a good a good point of view uh because when google used to interview people for for candidates for hiring they would ask people questions to get them thinking like how much would you charge to wash every window in the bay area and people would try to calculate these enormous calculations, but the answer that they were looking for was $25 per window. Basically, thinking systematically. And sometimes when we think about power storage, we think there must be some central location in Los Angeles or San Francisco with a million batteries that stores all of this energy. But in reality, there is power to what if every home had its own energy? How would that yeah. work? And there is no centralized location. So why do you think that that makes more sense? Okay, and that's really one that I think most of your listeners and even folks in, in the utility industry uh, haven't fully uh, understood. And I'll, I'll say that I have some credentials here because I also wrote a seminal study uh, for the U.S. Department of Energy, um, Fuel from the Sky, which got me at the time an extraordinary ability green card, allowed me to do what I wanted to do. Um, so I've been around for a while, and here's, here's the, the thing that, especially in emerging markets, is true more than here. Um, if you have a home, uh, you have typically a 200 uh, ampere connection. And at 20, 240 volt, that's, by the way, the voltage that you get, uh, that's about 48 kilowatt, 50 kilowatt. Um, and, you know, if you have a small home, you have 25. Now, the average consumption in your home is 
typically 10% of 25, hardly anyone does 50 kilowatt peak. That's unheard of. But the average, even if we're consuming 25 kilowatt as a peak, which is still high for most homes, but we see that um, without a problem, by the way, if you have a central air conditioning system, you're drawing two and a half kilowatt of power. Okay, so really on average, you only need a two and a half kilowatt connection. But unfortunately, average is not why they're life vests on a, on a ship, right? They're not there for average. They're there for the, for the moment of truth. So the moment of truth for a home is, of course, when that central air conditioner that my neighbor has turns on and draws instantaneously for about 10, 10 to 20 milliseconds, okay? 10 to 20 milliseconds draws 15, 17 kilowatt on top of the EV charger, which is currently drawing in the garage happily at eight kilowatt. And now you're 25. And if you can deliver that amount of power from locally, from the battery in the home, then you don't need all the other infrastructure out there. And so it is really trying to get, if you look, if you challenge any, not challenge, ask every of your viewer to, I look into Wikipedia and just look the word power distribution system. And you'll find in the first, second paragraph that the power distribution system in your residential area is 10 times higher than the average peak demand, which occurs for, we just discussed it, a few milliseconds. So um, if you could deliver power at your home, then that average infrastructure could fall down dramatically in size. And that's even more important for the parts of the world where we haven't built that infrastructure yet. Right, where the choice is between, um, you know, building a high power infrastructure or delivering high power locally and running energy to homes, and so that is really what I think the transformation is that we try to bring about with you solar to deliver high power to the home, very to cool. save on that cost. Yeah, and that's that moment when your AC kicks in. I've got one out outside, and it goes. <laughs> it takes a yes, very went, loud and, moment right at the beginning, and then it. Settles down. Yeah. And even even the lights in your house might dim slightly. For some True. people, uh, you know, even notice that, that a little flicker in the, in, the, in the load, yeah, because the draw is so high on the utility. Trying to figure that out. Yeah. So the interesting thing, from what I've seen, the video on your website, you've got a modular system, kind of Lego blocks that seem to stack on top yes. of each other in batteries. Yeah. And the use case that I saw is they're put in the garage. And for example, the solar panels, like you said, are on top of the house. So it is modular. Yeah. So do you determine how many battery blocks, or I think you call them power blocks, somebody needs? Yes. Or do they just buy as much as they can have? How, do, how does that get figured out? Yeah, good. So um, there's a few very important points. You mentioned the word garage. I want to speak about this. You mentioned modularity. But let's talk about sizing here at the moment. Uh, we are a whole home power supply. Uh, we actually run the house 24-7. We run soon a clinic. 24 seven, um, the, the grid is only there to supply energy. It actually doesn't contribute more than a few solar panels. So if the grid was to go away, you know, there's really on a, on a power, power level, as we just discussed, there's no impact because the batteries and the inverter deliver all the peak power. There's just a lack of energy. So some energy is less and that is a problem that accumulates over hours or a day. Um, so with that, we are the utility. And just like the utility needs to decide how many amps, you know, how many kilowatt does that home need? Is it two or three stores? Is it a clinic? We need to work with the customer to determine how much power the home needs. And then, of course, we also want to balance the energy because we really don't want to be drawing a lot of energy from the grid. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a conversation that we have to do with the customer, uh, but it's getting increasingly more efficient and, and simpler. Um, and we, we're doing better at that because obviously we're learning, you know, 
what these homes look like and how to size them. Um, so yes, now that's so it's still in consultation and it's still something we have to be involved in. But Sumo built a, a model, and it's a lot easier though, frankly, that what our competitors do or other companies uh, that do good work is they're providing energy arbitrage, right? So well, you know, if that battery gets it off, you know, by kilowatt, it doesn't matter. It only has four or five kilowatts to boot, you know, the home needs 25. So it's certainly not there for power. And, you know, whether I'm arbitraging some of my energy or whether I'm still grid tying, grid feeding some, you know, it's like, you know, okay, you know, I made a little mistake, but it's not the dryer quits working, okay? Um, so that's that's a difference. And, and by the way, that's what our customers want. They feel like if they have a solar system, if they have a battery, they at least they want to be independent of, of the utility. Now, going back to the garage and the modularity, uh, that's a very important point um, that you make. There's a reason why all these large batteries are mounted in garages. You might think, oh, well, that's because there's space. Well, actually, not, not really. Look at the average American garage. It's pretty busy, often so full they can't even park a car. True. Um, the reason it's in a garage because you can drive in a garage, meaning you can roll a dolly and, and a crate and, and some heavy equipment in there to mount against the wall because all these batteries are very heavy. It has a starting to modularize them. But if you were to take this around the world, but by the way, people don't have garages. Look around the world. Lots, lots of places don't have a garage because um, they can't afford it. And, and it was never planned into the house. And you need to start moving your battery system by hand. Uh, you know, you will run out of, out of options. And, and therefore, the important part about the modularity you spoke to is we need to break, break the battery specifically down into modules that can be hand carried uh, by two people. They can literally walk down the staircase. You don't want to be a piano effort, okay? And it is right now a piano effort. And, and that is so important for faster penetration. Uh, and, and that's the first thing. And that's what we have accomplished. And I'll talk more about this if you if you give me a chance later, because there's more that we have done than just breaking it down in, in size. Um, the other part is um, you want to make it uh, uh, plug and play because there's a constraint, right? Even a average solar installer needs to make a choice about which solar systems with a battery they can install because they only have that many people that can, only that many certification courses they need to take. And, and even then, you know, they have, a lot of other business and not everyone in the company is, is can do this kind of work. That's a little more tricky. So ultimately they also often are limited too in how many battery systems they can install. And often they just go with one brand, not because they're not recommending the brand because they think that brand is better. They're recommending the brand that, that particular brand be that LG Cam or Tesla because you only want to know how to install. So what we try to do with you solar is to have a true plug and play system that any electrician can put together and install. So those are the, Two important parts, um, getting the weight down so that this can be moved anywhere, especially in emerging markets, and making it plug and play for the same good reason that we want to overcome obstacles to installation. Those are fascinating developments. I love that. It's obviously, I can easily understand why people want to be energy independent. It's a very sexy thought to think, what if I didn't need the grid? What if I didn't need gas? What if I didn't need any external thing? What if I could be totally self-contained? The solar panels on my roof power yeah. my appliances. They also charge my electric vehicle. They power my stove, so I don't need natural gas anymore. How possible is that? Are there any regions where that is currently possible, or do you always need the power grid in some capacity currently with your solution right now? So you can be entirely off-grid, um, and, and many of our customers are. However, I think practically speaking, it is um, 
much better if you stay on the grid, grid connected, no longer grid tight, and I'll make the difference in a moment, and use the grid as you know, like to call it an uncorrelated energy source that's available in case your sun doesn't deliver. And that doesn't feed the argument of those that say, oh, well, you know, you're still dependent on the grid and, you know, you didn't really do anything without our coal-fired power plants, you wouldn't be there. Uh, that's actually not, not, not the right way of thinking because if you want to take that point of view, well, let me get myself a small, uh, you know, fuel cell or, or gas power generator and then, you know, and for the little energy that I'm talking about, I'll supplement myself that way. A lot of our customers do that, by the way. And these generators, you know, for example, for the project we have designed, for Big Sur that's been running for a couple of years, it was running like, you know, once a week for two hours. Okay, that's all it took, right? To make it 100% energy independent. That's not, you don't need a grid for that, no. right? Um, so it's, it is very possible. And, and there's a couple of reasons why that why that's increasingly possible. However, staying on the grid is actually a good thing. And um, I want to make the point about the mobile phone um, that's often confused with a walkie-talkie. An off-grid system is a walkie-talkie. Right, you don't need a cell phone tower, but uh, a power block that's quick connected is a lot like a mobile phone because your mobile phone only transmits for a mile, and and, and you know maybe more, and then goes into a cell phone tower and then goes into a fiber optic cable and connects to your uncle in Florida and comes up the cell phone tower and finds the uncle on the golf course. It is hardly, yes. uh, you know, an independent system. You're completely linked in. Right. But opening up that last mile, I mean, made all the difference, right? And so similarly, if we can, and by the way, we need the grid. The grid will be so important because we'll have so much more electric load on our system that despite our great ambitions, there'll be so many people in urban areas, in densely urban areas, as we electrify our home energy appliances, our electric cars, just don't have enough roof right. space, right? Uh, you know, if you want to provide all the energy in a home, and that excludes an electric car, you cannot have more than three or four stories. At that point, you're running out of roof space. Fortunately, that's not that's plenty for most Americans, right? We got plenty of roof space, including electric cars for single-family homes. So you want the grid, and uh, but you want to transform the grid from what we usually refer to it as a power grid, right? The electric power system. You want to convert it to an electric energy system. You really want to be moving energy around as it's needed, moving from that storage location to the home to the electric car. And again, you know, once a car starts to charge on a schedule, like, you know, on certain times, coordinating the grid, like at 2 a.m. in the morning, I'll turn on, the grid knows about it. It becomes much more, if you allow me to make the distinction, an energy grid, rather than the, oh my God, I caught you by surprise, boom, I'm gonna hit you with eight kilowatt out of my garage, right? That That is a power grid. And so everyone benefits. And as a matter of fact, uh, you read, your viewers should check out uh, some of the companies out there that are, um, working with utility, including ourselves soon, um, to have a, you know, a, a win-win solution where the utilities can breathe and say, oh my God, I don't have to care, take care of some of these power issues. I can now focus on the energy issues because delivering power is important, is expensive. I need to install all this equipment. It needs to be there 24 seven. And now I can form focus on energy. And I give you an example, particularly for California, uh, where we about to plan to bury 10,000 miles of power lines, mostly to rural customers and customers in the urban wildlife interface. So right now, if they lose power, the air conditioner is off instantaneously. The refrigerator starts melting down right away. But what if they all had a high power solar battery system, such as a power block, and the utility may even have installed and provided that at location. Well, 
the custom wood shrug and say, well, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, I, I don't need any power. You know, I'm, I'm supplemental energy. Let me just cut back maybe 5%, 10%. That's about how much energy you need from the grid. And let those linemen come next week, right? Because all these trucks, all these linemen cost money. If there's a, there's a storm in Louisiana after hurricane, these people need to be mobilized from other parts of, of the Southwest and go there. So it's actually in utilities interest to think about these models. And so we see that a win-win uh, for both. The grid will remain very important, but we want to move it to an energy infrastructure rather than instantaneous power infrastructure. That makes perfect sense. And we have seen, like you said, some countries have more power instability than others. We've seen, like Germany, for example, they're very afraid. They say, hey, we're going to shut off this natural gas pipeline. We don't know if it'll ever get turned back on again. There's fear preparing for the worst in that case. Um, so there are a lot of people that's probably not the biggest example because there are developing countries that have far more energy problems. But the idea, especially now with the global situation that you may not have power, you may not have gas, or you may not have oil or fossil fuels at the cheap rate that you used to, how do you think that this product can benefit those types of areas? Is it something that everybody could have, in your opinion, that, for example, in India, but also Europe and various parts of the world that struggle with this? Can they all have such a solution? Yeah, and the power block is really designed for emerging markets, especially the stackable one, which I haven't fully uh, you know, advertised, if you like, because that's something we did that's extraordinary, that's never been done before cool. in terms of power electronics. Um, but going back to importantly to this question, uh, I think that's the only path forward. Um, you know, if we want to have full penetration of solar, which is, let's not uh, be humble here, truly only energy solution out there. Uh, wind is just, no one lives where it's windy. Wind is a large scale energy form. It requires transmission. It requires all these challenges we try to overcome. Nearly all the people that matter in terms of energy demand growth live within 30 degrees of latitude. And, and um, even closer, if once you're 15 degrees within the equator, there's just pretty much flat demand and flat supply, meaning the demand for air conditioning and cooling or whatnot is constant and, and the supply for solar is, is pretty much constant. Mm. Uh, so for them, it is the solution. And, and But the important part is we need to get out of this complicated, instantaneous network of, of power systems that as a moment there's a disruption to it, it breaks down. It also is way too expensive. I mean, why would you, if you have the solar battery on your roof, first of all, wheel all the energy back to some central battery and wheel it back, right? Or if there was no battery, uh, you would leave it right there because you also, because you're saving all of that distribution infrastructure. I'm not just saying all of it, but the big pipes, I mean, small pipes are fine, you know, to move energy around, but get rid of the big pipes. It costs money. And also then the servicing of it. Again, if the big pipe, if the small pipe breaks, it doesn't affect the customer much, right? Okay, my power line went down to my farm, but, you know, my power block says I got 72 hours of energy. I'll, I'll call them tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow never comes because the sun shines tomorrow. Right. So it really eases everything. But also from a technical perspective, you know, it allows us in the deep penetration of solar with any of those duck curves and power issues. So yeah, it's it's the way to go. It's the way forward. And then of course, in general, from an energy perspective, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, look what happened in Europe, uh, look, you know, with, with Putin's gas and, and, and other disruptions to our um, environment. And remember, severe weather doesn't just affect wind farms and, 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 and wind turbines. 
a drought means a power plant, a power plant doesn't cannot pull in cooling water needs to shut down. I mean, you know, these things are all related and affect all um, all generation sources. As a matter of fact, global heating, or you know, as we should really call it, is really bad for thermal power plants because they really need cool environments to discharge the heat to be efficient. So yeah, I think it is the way forward, and it's it will make a huge difference. So what about in areas like Europe where, again, the the Netherlands that I lived in for eight years, where the sun seems to never shine? What is the solution in those types of areas for the homes there? Yeah, I'll, I'll make the point, of course, just because of, I'm opportunistic that we all have 39 degrees Celsius in, in Amsterdam tomorrow. Right uh, and, now, and clears, exactly. It's a and, massive and, heat oh, right wave now, right now. I think the heat, the peak is tomorrow. Um, I think so. Clear, I think you're clear, right. A, a clear sky, but that you know the point is just uh, this is a um, doesn't uh, the seasonality of sunshine doesn't change with weather, and you're right about that. Uh, but then, of course, you know Europe is at forty some latitude, not the thirty degrees I'm talking about. Right. And, and it's really and I'm not. I mean, I'll return. I'm not trying to avoid the the, the subject. Um, but if you want to ask yourselves, where do we go? Will, will we win the war on climate? It, it, yes, in Europe and America as well, but the big battles are going to be in emerging markets where growth is even accelerating, and that's where we have to go, and, and there's no problem delivering solar 24-7. Um, so for countries like uh, Europe, uh, you know, the question then remains is, can they develop alternative infrastructures that can bring uh, either energy from southern latitudes, right? And there's the question of could they bring in hydrogen, right? I mean... Suddenly, we can bring in hydrogen from Qatar, right? Uh, unfortunately, I think that hydrogen is also generated from natural gas. But, uh, you know, we could start thinking, okay, now if we suddenly got this idea that we can supplement by bringing and building out a German hydrogen economy or hydrogen infrastructure, well, let's go a step further and make up, you know, for the seasonal demand uh, with, um, you know, solar installations in, 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 in desert countries. But I make a point, although... Now you talk about an energy uh, situation, right? You want to store it in tankers, you want to ship it up. I don't know if I want to be dependent on electricity from a southern country, right? With a high voltage power yeah. line. Because while Putin can turn up the gas and, and, and Germany still has a couple months, uh, and if you shut up electricity demand, you, you're off the grid instantaneously. So um, therefore, if I was to advise the German government, I wouldn't suggest to put solar panels into the northern Sahara and run high voltage power lines up there because someone turns them off or they cut off for one or the other reason, you're out. I'd rather say, okay, let's make hydrogen, ship it up there, store it and, and buffer it and develop a clean energy infrastructure. So I think the, 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 the Putin gas crisis or the Russian gas crisis has suddenly made clear that, yeah, well, we see Snally in the Netherlands, we'll make up by importing hydrogen from Morocco or from Qatar or from Australia for that matter, right? They're yep. exactly anti, anti-cyclical in terms of, of the summer and the winter. Right. So do you think that it makes sense in those types of areas for people to have the power block or battery system without necessarily the solar panels, just the batteries? Does that, is there a reality where that's a good solution? Um, uh, yes, yes and no. Uh, and so here's, here's something that I want people to be mindful of. Um, essentially, well, of course, if you were to store it for, uh, you know, energy security, you have a small point. The problem is, you know, we design, um, battery systems to last the customer about 24 hours if there was no new solar energy coming into the system. That's way more. Way, and I'm talking about average load. I'm not talking about running a laptop computer like you read other battery companies advertising, run your home for five days, and then the footprint 
you can run your laptop in one light. Now I'm talking about right. average power. You know, we offer 50, uh, 50 kilowatt hour batteries uh, to our customers, of, you know, just for residential customers even. But that, that, doesn't get, that will not get you through an energy crisis in the Netherlands, right? That gets you through one, one day. So you need, have to, you need to have to integrate energy uh, production of some sort from hydrogen otherwise. Uh, what the batteries can do, though, is address the power issue, right? I don't have to live instant, deliver instantaneous power to home. I can let the energy trickle in, and that battery will always deliver instantaneous power. And by the way, if my grid has some problems, they don't mind if they offer 24 hours because they've got plenty of energy. So in that sense, it does help. Now, it may not be as important in Europe, Netherlands, especially because they already invested all that money to build a very reliable, high-power infrastructure. So, you know, but that, again, is not where the happening is. That's not where the game, the global uh, climate chess game is being played. It's played in markets that have very weak infrastructure, electric infrastructure, or that yet have to build it. And for them, absolutely, the power block, an independent, high-power solar battery system is a much more, much more policy and cost-effective way to move forward. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I do want to switch gears here and kind of go back to the very thing that you said at the beginning of this episode, which is there's this duality of new technology. And I think people like us, people who are eco-conscious, who like the world, who like the Amazon rainforest, who like getting out in nature, there is a part of technology that we love. For example, watching the images of the James Webb Telescope I'm in awe. And when I see some of the things that we've done with good technology, it's just incredible. That's so positive. And also green energy and the kind of things that you're working on, they're so incredible. But then we see this other bad technology or human industrialization causing pollution, causing negative side effects around the world. Are there two different technologies, in your opinion, or is it just all part of the same evolution? Like we need to go through this horrible phase like the industrial revolution to get to the greener, better solutions? Or is there really a split in how technology is developing, one good and one bad? Um, well, certainly the policymakers and, and try to divide the two, um, but they're not different. They're just a succession. And, you know, I don't know if we could have arrived at enlightening, enlightenment uh, without the Inquisition. Uh, we would have not arrived at the scientific principle without the Enlightenment. And and so, you know, while we can do well without the Inquisition, we should still keep the Enlightenment. But the point is, uh, you know, these these were processes that, you know, humans and, and humanity and, and, and civilization went through and have the greatest of respect and admiration and, and, and awe of the process we've gone through at humans that ultimately resulted in the James Webb Telescope, which I think, has been some sort of, of, of a point of relief and belief for people that there's still some greatness in humanity. I think there's plenty of greatness in humanity. Uh, we just need to be honest and, and, and also open and, and, and non-confrontational about the idea that since I have a better idea, I have enlightenment versus inquisition, and I'm sorry, this is a bad idea to refer to coal and solar here in that sense, but you know, I have a succeeding idea, I have a new idea. And this idea is better. And this idea is better for, for the following reasons. Um, it doesn't make the old idea bad. It just suggests that the new idea should be given more room. And so I don't, you know, I don't see this way. Unfortunately, uh, because there's entrenched interest, right? There's people holding on to assets, to money, to wealth, to uh, succession of oil families or coal families or any family that ha owns anything that's worth something. Um, 
you know, there's a conflict built up. But it's not one of technologies, some one simple of, of, of family legacy and wealth and perhaps preservation. And, and how to break through this, I don't know. I think ultimately um, we need to just erode away at this, at this, at this asset uh, gap, right? Uh, I mean, you know that the current value of uh, oil company is not derived by the gasoline they sell today because that gasoline will be sold out by the end of the day, right? The pump has a couple hours of gas or maybe two days. It's the expected value of the oil reserves it holds, right? And, and they'll fight for those that value to remain. And if, you know, we suddenly use less oil, that value goes down, presumably if the price of oil decreases with it or the overall demand. So, uh, you know, it's it, that's really the battle we have. It's a battle of economic, it's, it almost goes back to, I mean, I've never read any of the great economists, but yeah, it only goes to the, the, the wealth of nations, right? They own stuff and, yes. and, and technology makes that stuff worth less. And that's the conflict we're looking at. That's true. And yeah. there are those who try to devalue new technology by saying it's better to hold on to an old beater car than to buy a new Tesla because the amount of energy that goes into producing an electric vehicle is greater than the amount of energy that would use that you would use if you just took an old car and ran it into the ground on gasoline. When you need to use presumably fossil fuels to make these green tech products, what do you say to those people who think that you should just skip that step because you need to make these batteries, you need to manufacture these things in a way that isn't necessarily using solar power to get there? Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there's a point if that point was used wisely. Unfortunately, it's often used to kind of hold back. I have an old 2006 Passat that is only used to go and drive to go skiing or if you go on a camping trip where we need something that can get banged up right it has a cargo box has a hitch it hardly drives uh you know and i would not replace it with an electric suv uh because it will require way more energy to produce that vehicle than all the embedded energy in in the car but for most part i think people know when that when that transition happens it's almost it was one of very few things i rely on on, on everyone's personal gut feeling to know when that transition is, is occurring. And, you know, in my case, it's like, you know, it's kind of getting to the borderline, whether, you know, repli- replacing an oil pump for $59 because, you know, you can't get it anymore makes much sense or should say for, uh, you know, my electric SUV. I think for most people, that's pretty clear um, when that happens, because I think intuitively they make it like these micro microeconomic decisions. But overall, um, you know, we have an EV, um, a small one, because uh, we didn't think the big one makes sense. Uh, for the reasons you don't indicated, right? If you can get by with a small one. Um, but overall, it's time to change, folks. You know, do not buy a new gasoline car. I mean, I could, I cannot see a single argument why anyone buy a new, uh, new gasoline car at this point. And, and so in that way, I would say it's not only to support the development of technology, which I think is true. And I'll make a, I'll say something to this very, very importantly, but it's also, you know, to help yourself because, you know, if, if everyone's telling you that in 15, 20 years, they're not supporting gasoline car powered cars anymore that doesn't mean that day it will end with a with a bang no it's going to be a trickle and a decay and you'll be struggling to find a dealer you'll be struggling to find a mechanic uh and and so you know i would get on the little bandwagon more often and sooner um but i like to make another point here which i think most of your uh listeners may have not thought about and i built uh my parents built i designed one of the first passive houses in germany and um 
it was built in 1991, which was about the time the term passive house was de de defined or the methodology. And for those who don't know, uh, it's a home, even Germany, that can almost entirely uh, ex allow you to live without any heat source. It's super insulated. It has triple insulated walls and windows and water recycling, everything you can ever dream of. And when we built it, my parents paid for it, I would say. I designed it. They paid mm -hmm. for it. In 1991, I was only 17. Um, it would cost twice as much as a conventional home. Today, it's only um, 6 or 7%. And until recently, it only took you a couple of years to pay it off with the gas savings. And now with what we have in Europe right now, it probably pays them off within a year. Wow. So you could say, Arnold, foolish you were. Why did you not build this home You know, 30 years later? Now you today would pay off in a day. Why should you wait? Well, I'll make a point that my mother's and my father's lives are finite, right? They're, my father passed away, but my mother's 80 now. So she would have not spent 30 years in the most modern and comfortable house over some savings uh, just to be proven right today. And by the way, the reason it's so cheap today is because we paid for it at a time. And I think we happily paid for it. So for those who can afford it, I think many of our customers are in a position, they say, I don't want to wait 30 years until I have an independent power system, until I can enjoy uninterrupted power, until I can enjoy the feeling of being self-reliant. I only get 80 years to live. I'm 55 now, I'm going, right? Uh, and then of course, they also help with their, you know, with the assets they have, with the wealth they have to bring this technology down so it's affordable for everyone. So uh, think about that you only have that much life to live and that you probably want to have the things in life that you want sooner than later, not when they become affordable. I agree. And I think when people experience that feeling for themselves, it's easy to knock it in theory or to deprioritize it. But I think that any person that experiences that, witnessing their energy bill going down to zero slowly, and they realize this thing on my roof is powering my car and my appliances and all of this, I think that's going to be a very addictive feeling for humans in general. It's going to feel very empowering. Yeah, it's a miracle. I mean, I built these homes and occasionally I one, one home I, I end, end up staying there sometimes because the, the owner, owner invites me to when he's not trying. It's in Big Sur. So when he's not at home, occasionally he says, why don't you bring your family? I built the system. It's still a miracle to me that my kids can charge the iPads right. and, and we have light and we run the washing machine and we're not connected to the grid, even though I'm the person who built it. You know? So, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful feeling. And people really enjoy that part of it. And then something happens to an oil company, their stock plummets, gas prices go up, and you say, I don't care. doesn't affect me. Look at my mother. My mother who lives in a passive house that I designed, do you think she's worried about Putin's right. gas and the energy bill? It's so cool. Not at all. That house barely uses any natural gas. You know, if she wanted, she has a fireplace. Okay, she's in the countryside. She has a wood fireplace, you know. Uh, open fireplace like we have in the past, but not only could she use it, the home has a an air recycling system, right? So it's not like, oh, well, the living room will be warm and the rest of the house is cold. No, um, it will bring in uh, the warm air from the living room and exchange against cold air from the outside, which is vented into all the rooms in the house. So, you know, so she can actually, you know, warm more than just a living room, heat more than one, just the living room. But certainly Putin... Putin's, uh, you know, this whole natural gas uh, discussion doesn't enter my mother's mind. I love it. It's not an issue for that her. That is so cool. Yeah. And it's something that I aspire to. I'm still renting. I have a home that could do it, but I'm renting. I don't own it. But I dream of this reality for myself and my family every single day. I dream of installing exactly your product. I would do it tomorrow. I cannot wait. It's a joy that I'm looking forward to in my own life to be able to experience that. And I'm working on it as fast as I can, basically. 
Thank you. Make sure it's a power block. No, no, no. <laughs> of course. I'm the first person I think of. You've sold me. I'm convinced. But, but, but uh, yeah. But I'm also very impressed. But I will say. Yeah, okay. go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Some solace for all the renters out there. I rent okay. too. And why the rent? Because I poured all my assets into this company. I couldn't afford uh, to buy a house, much to my regret, because we would have probably done well uh, here in the Bay Area. And my wife still uh, points it out every time to me that <laughs> instead of a house, she has, she has a a red right, exactly. She's got behind, a sign right uh, behind your left shoulder. But <laughs> she got it, all she got was a sign. Um, so what, what do what do I do? Okay. Um, so I buy. Um, I'm lucky to buy uh, the energy from a co-op through PG&E, the local utility services. But many others have the same choice. And I decided that we pay uh, for 100% solar in our case, even not just green energy. And it's a significant increase, right? We have a $250 bill. And then people say, well, he's the rich CEO of a startup, and I'll tell you, I'm not. Uh, it's just something that we spent money on, and we don't have the money uh, for other things. And I repair my daughter's shoes last night. I was in the basement, and I, she wanted some new running shoes, but they were torn, and I went down, and I fixed them up with my, with you know, some mesh and some fabric, So uh, because I want it. And if you really want it, uh, you can take those steps. So um, I'm about to convince our landlord to put a solar system in this in this house and the power block specifically but you know that's what i can do and most other people hope will do is also buy green energy it doesn't solve the technical issues that i uh that we discussed but it definitely definitely is a big leap forward and uh, please do so if you can afford it and i think it speaks to what people can do the kind of choices that we can make and it's at the end of the day it's about people making better choices and i believe in my heart, that when people make smarter, more energy efficient, more ecological minded choices, that the satisfaction that they will feel will be worth it. So at the end of the day, you won't notice spending $250 extra when all is said and done in your final days of life. But what you will feel is the satisfaction of knowing that you pushed a very important movement forward and that you dedicated your life to something that would benefit all humans. I think that is worth something too. And when we only evaluate our lives in terms of how much our monthly spend is or our bills, we're missing a huge component of what it means to be alive. Yeah. And I'll say one more, especially to young people, and I consider myself young, uh, that are frustrated uh, and, 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 and have lost some kind of an anchor of what, where the world is going and what they believe in. And, and, and you know, the, the moral... I don't mean it in terms of, uh, sorry, let's call it the moral crisis or the, the, you know, the, 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 I think there's a lot of people in the United States and elsewhere in the world that don't right now know exactly where to hang their compass. Okay. And so for them, I say, don't argue that, well, if I do something that it's not going to make a difference. Uh, I tell you, I've been to India. And, and not to hop on India, my wife's from Mumbai, but you know, if you go to India, you realize your recycling efforts here in the Bay Area in Berkeley make no difference whatsoever, okay? Uh, but what does it give you, and, and by the way, you shouldn't recycle, you shouldn't create the waste in the first time, just buy things that don't have packaging or less packaging. Um, but, um, but for those who buy and pay for solar energy and, and, and our other renewables through a green energy program, here's what it gives you. It may not change the world, right? Coal-fired power plants may still supply power in China, but it gives you a right to speak. It gives you a moral high ground. It gives you that that certainty that if I say something, I can say with respect for my, to myself. And I think that is so important because ultimately, 
it's not the change you may make at home that you know will save the world because I know I'm one out of eight billion people and I possibly cannot make a difference. And neither does Elon Musk um, individually, but in the role of a policymaker at some point, or as the husband of a wife or the wife of a husband that takes these steps, one day they'll make a decision in a point of influence, right? It's maybe the husband at home that insisted on organic chicken that made the wife who's the CEO of McDonald's to decide that we're going to go to hormone-free food, a chicken at McDonald's. That's also where it trickles down and trickles up, if you like. So I'd say to everyone, do it. Don't wait for other people. And if anything, it gives you the right to speak, and it gives you this, the peace of mind, the self-confidence, and, 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 the, and, the, and the footing that I think, you know, all of us want in a world that's so, so in upheaval and so changing. Yeah. Those are profound, wise words, and I don't think you had an eye on the clock, or maybe you did, but that's a heck of a way to wrap up our hour together. And, and I want to say, again, some people have had a brilliant idea overnight, or they changed careers rapidly, but when I see your career, I see the culmination of many decades of hard work and focused effort, and this is just the most natural progression on your own journey towards finding the best, most impactful way that you can dedicate your time and energy. So... It's not quite as simple as a what is your get rich quick scheme or what was this last idea, but I do think that it makes a lot of sense. I would encourage anybody to visit Solar, your website, see the video, see how it works, see the simplicity and the brilliance behind it, and I think everybody will be convinced as to why and how this is a great solution. And you're not alone because I've noticed that you've raised millions of funding for the company, you've got some big backers. You have already gotten some accolades from very influential people, including uh, MIT, and obviously you've, you've been a national finalist and a, a clean tech open and all of these things. And it's just hard for me to see that that trend won't continue. So I thank you for dedicating your life to what you have done. I really appreciate you, thank you. sitting down and talking and sharing your thoughts with me. I think that they do go hand in hand. I value the things that you value and it's been an honor to speak with you today. Thank you, Ross. And uh, I hope we will continue this conversation sometime in the future with the success we all have had on this planet with you know the efforts that we're undertaking. Absolutely. And I want to give you the final word here. Where do you want people to go? Any last thing that you want to say? I'll let you wrap up this episode. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, very importantly, you know, we, I and my team can work on things, but we talked about earlier resources, right? Assets. Uh, a company like us lives from people believing in us, in buying our product, but also supporting us as investors. So if you um, want to make a difference and you believe that we are a company that does, please uh, invest in Usola. You can do so currently on Start Engine. It's an equity a crowd plan, crowdfunding platform. You'll find us at startengine.com forward slash usola, and you can invest as little as $350 and support uh, the work we do and, and, and the transformation we, we are intending to bring about. And uh, hopefully you will do well in the process of doing so. And uh, yeah, that's that's another way you can drive progress. And it's not just usola, the other companies out there, you can support free investment and of course through your purchases. So please come to uh, startengine.com forward slash usola and take a look at our company all right great well it's been a pleasure arnold thank you so much 
And with that, the official podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs>